it was a great weekend to be a fan of the University of North Carolina. The Tar Heels go into Charlotte, Bank of America Stadium, and take down the South Carolina Gamecocks by a score of 31 to 37. We got a lot to talk about in the second episode of Talking Heels. I'm your host, Nick Delahanty. To my side is my co-host, Jordan Game Day Falls. Jordan, you get that name because you were featured on TV during Game Day. How's it going? It's going great, man. Yeah, we were on uh on TV quite a bit. Seems like my phone was blowing up Saturday morning during uh, college game day, and we had blast. It was funny because when I was watching college game day, I'm like, where's Waldo? But instead it was, where's Jordan? So it was a lot of fun watching you there and, and seeing the atmosphere. And, of course, I'm going to try to pick your brain on that as we could talk more about this game as a whole. But a lot of headlines surrounding the Tar Heels after that one. Carolina's defense was the storyline in this one. Give me your take from being there. How was the atmosphere in Charlotte? Absolutely. And we, we talked last week. What was the first thing we were looking for watching at home or at the game? And my take was the defense. How did it look the first few drives of the game? And that first drive at three and out, first play of the game, Elijah Hussey sniffs, sniffs out what looked like to be a trip play from South Carolina. And uh, that kind of set the tone for the game and for the night for the for the Tar Heel defense. And, and it uh, really mattered with those tackles for losses and things like that. Atmosphere in Charlotte was wonderful. Uh, unfortunately for the Tar Heels, we were outnumbered in the fan base. Uh, definitely felt like a Gamecock home game. Um, but the Tar Heels avoided that and uh, played through that pressure. Yeah, for sure. And we talked about it on our first episode, and I said, do not give South Carolina the ball to start the game. Well, I was wrong because the defense came out and they put together a really nice opening drive to get Drake May and company on the field. And the Tar Heels, what did they do? They responded with seven points. It was such a turn of events. And I don't know about you, but for me, I'm sitting there and I'm like, man, this defense looks a lot better than it did a year ago. I know it's only one series, but hey, they're getting pass rush. They're making life difficult for Spencer Rattler. And they got off the field and now gave some comfort to Drake May where he's looking at it saying, I don't have to do it all. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I know it was scary in the stadium. It had to be scary at home at third down on the first drive for South Carolina. Spencer Rattler had him wrapped up. He escapes. Nothing but green grass. And he found a pretty much open receiver. And, again, Elijah Hussey, we're going to talk about him a lot. He he made a great play on the ball to break up a pass and create that third down. But uh, or the fourth and three and out. But uh, other than that, other than missing a few tackles here and there, they, they on the first tackle, they wrapped up and got the uh, Gamecock offense player on the, on the ground. And now before we get deeper into this game, it's important to note that just an hour before game time, a couple of key injury notes hit for the Tar Heels. Nate McCollum was seen on the sideline not warming up with the receivers. He was out. So that left the Tar Heels without Tez Walker and McCollum for this one. Then you look at the defensive side of the ball. DeAndre Boykins, who was listed as a starting corner for this team, was found to be out for the season. He was on crutches. They made it seem like he wasn't even there. At that point, when you heard about that at the stadium, what was going through your mind? Because for me, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh, boy, this is going to be a long night. Yeah, it, it wasn't uh, very positive from the Tar Heel fan base that knew about the injuries. Some of the people are in the stadium, obviously, uh, maybe not great cell service or things like that. They they probably didn't know at that point. But if you're sitting at home, you're you're pretty worried. Uh, down your top two receivers and your starting nickelback, or as the Tar Heels call him, the star on the defensive side of the ball. Um, 
that that gave some worry to Carolina fans. Um, the good news is that you have Drake May, and he knows how to spread the ball around. So uh, we saw that Saturday night, uh, finding t- nine different targets uh, without his top two receivers. So uh, hopefully McCullum gets back here soon, but uh, that was worrisome on Saturday night. Now let's talk about the offense for a minute. First drive, they go right down the field. It was, it was a beautiful drive. First drive under Chip Lindsey, we saw a lot of different things. They ran a little wildcat where they were about to before South Carolina timeout. It seemed like they were throwing a little bit of everything at the Gamecocks trying to catch them off guard. What did you think overall about how the offense looked in this one? Yeah, it looked great. Uh, Ashley had a somewhat of a running game. Uh, we didn't really know what to expect with the running game. We talked about this last week in episode one was – is it going to be five guys spread out? Is it going to be four? Turned out it was only two, uh, British Brooks and uh, Omarion Hampton, uh, which was one of your key players of the game uh, last week, was uh, really important in this. Both of them pretty much split the carries 50-50. I think Brooks had 15 and uh, Hampton had 16. Uh, and so that obviously took the pressure off of Drake May, especially being down as top two targets. When you can run the football, it makes things a lot easier on uh, everybody, and that really helped. Yeah, what a great storyline for British Brooks. 611 days you wrote about it on Keeping a Heel. What a story for him to come back and put together a performance like that, especially on the same field that he played his last game on. Yeah, exactly, and uh, we saw post game with him, an emotional moment with Matt, uh, Matt Brown, and uh, you could tell he's just happy to be back, and uh, – he performed like he's happy to be back, too. He came in and made a uh, – was very impactful, for sure, for uh, the Tarot offense. Now, I think that we can both agree on this. One of the players that we were a little surprised not to see was their leading rusher last year, Elijah Green. Something seems to tell me that that might be a common situation if these two guys in Hampton and Brooks continue to run the ball at an efficient pace. Yeah, for sure. It uh, was kind of surprising early. Um, but then when you start to think about it and look into it, if you have two guys that are really going and have their momentum and are in a rhythm, you don't want to take them out of that. So you kind of get that development of a dynamic duo. And if that's Brooks and Hampton, maybe it resembles a little bit of Javante and Michael Carter from a few years ago. But obviously that's a high standard to meet. But you want something of that nature. You don't want, you don't want to have to have four guys – trying to combine for 200 yards rushing when you can have two doing it and gain in a rhythm. Absolutely. And Brooks might not be the leading rusher every single week. It might be Hampton who has the better week. But overall, if you could get that production from uh, two or three of those guys, that's all you really need, especially with the caliber you have at Drake May, a quarterback. Now, let's look at the receivers. couple of iffy situations. Gavin Blackwell had a, a pretty tough game. He did make a nice play. In that third quarter, but two very brutal drops. What were your takes on the wide receiver court? Thought outside the drops, the wide receivers were okay. Um, fourth and two, Blackwell may put the ball perfectly in his hands that uh, would have been first down and could have led to a touchdown. If nothing else, you get three points out of that drive. Um, Got to catch that ball, and that's probably just a product of not a lot of chemistry between May and Blackwell. If it, not seeing time with the first string, things like that. Again, the McCollum news slid Blackwell into that role. So something that just has to be dealt with and 
Uh, hopefully they can get better throughout the year. And then the the third and long Blackwell calls a or drops a pass that uh, likely will have been a first down. He had a lot of open space and uh, could have likely scored a touchdown. Tarles had to sell for three on that drive. So despite some mistakes, the Tarles offense was uh, able to still put points on the board, but um, score and the defense was able to step up for us. Um, outside Blackwell, getting the tight ends involved. Kobe Pesor with a big catch. Uh, for a touchdown, uh, May looked a little rusty. Uh, threw two picks. We're not used to seeing that. We're, we expect him to be Superman. Uh, luckily, he didn't have to be. Now, going to Blackwell, I think that the one thing that Tar Heel fans should take from this is that this kid's got a lot of talent. Because if Drake May didn't have confidence in him, he wouldn't have targeted him after the first drop and he did he went right back to him and he kept going to him which goes to show me that if may trust him we have to trust him it's going to come around he's too talented to not let it happen the play that really stood out to me of course the fourth down drop but on the interception may made a bad decision i'm not taking anything away from that but blackwell could have made a play on that ball like Act like a corner a little bit. It's kind of like he stood there and was just like, ah, you know, I'll let him catch the ball. Other than that, I think the rust is going to come off. I think he's going to be fine. Pesor had a couple of big plays. I think that as long as McCollum and Walker are out, he's going to get more looks. And like you said, May is a guy who is not afraid to throw the ball and take chances. And sometimes that results in interceptions. The NFL scouts watching that game, I think, are saying to themselves, you know what? He's a guy that... We're willing to take those risks. He thinks he can make that throw. He's confident enough to take that throw. And yeah, you know, you want to protect the ball. You want to be smarter with it. But the way Drake May was operating out of the backfield, some of these crazy looking Patrick Mahomes type of throws, for the most part, he had a really good night. The two interceptions really overshadowed that because that first half, he was essentially flawless. Second half, they started to take a couple, a little more risks. They didn't pan out. But with Drake May under center, you might see those pan out over the season. Yeah, and we mentioned Patrick Mahomes, and it might seem absurd to compare him to Mahomes at the moment, but he made some Mahomes-esque throws. He uh, had one where he scrambled around the pocket, threw across his body, and hit Nesbitt for a first down on third and like seven, I think. And even the interception of, uh, Black uh, that was intended for Blackwell, he did throw across his body, but like you said, Blackwell's got to become a defender come back to the ball, and that's a play we have to remember. He lost his top two targets from last year, Josh Downs and Antoine Green, who are both in the NFL. Last year, he was making those throws, and those guys were making the play on those balls, either catching them or at least breaking them up. And then his other interception, the code Pacer was in the traffic a little bit, but Pacer bobbled it. He, he's got to catch that ball, and that just comes with time, and these guys have to get used to the way May's throwing the ball to them and things like that. That's a, that's a develop for sure. And think about this, too. As a young receiver, when you have a quarterback that can make things happen when the pocket breaks down, you never know what to expect. I felt like some of the throws that he, I almost called them Mahomes that May made in that game, it, it kind of felt like the receivers were like, what the heck is going on here? How'd, that, how'd he throw that? The touchdown to Coppenhaver in the in the end zone was he, – he just threw that ball up and was like, you know what? Yeah, here it is. Like somebody's got to be there type of thing and made the play. He makes some miraculous plays. I think as a receiver, it kind of wakes you up a little bit, saying you're never truly out of the play. You got to be alert at all times. Yeah, that play to uh, 
John Copenhaver for sure was wonderful. If you go back and watch the film on that, and we saw in the stand a little bit, I kind of noticed that South Carolina was showing blitz. May saw that. He slid his protection. He knew who the free guy was and drifted away from uh, from the blitz to, make, to at least give himself a chance to make that play. And he didn't take a sack. That's another thing, the offensive line. Didn't give up a sack all night. And part of that made throwing the ball away, but they kept made clean. And that was one of the, our keys to the game last week as well, as well was the offensive line had to win the battle in the trenches. And Willie Lampkin in his first game as a Tar Heel looked really good. He might arguably be their best offensive lineman. He he looked really good in that game, and I feel like that was such a big boost to have not allowing any sacks like you mentioned. Yeah, I think Lampkin, Lampkin is going to be by far. By the end of the year, he'll be the best offensive lineman. He had a few uh, middle mistakes where he missed a linebacker or missed a block, but that's just an adjustment period that's going to come with playing at a faster speed of football than with what he's used to at Coastal Carolina. So, if you had to grade the Tar Heels offense in this one, now, of course, no McCollum, no Walker, what would you give them grade-wise? I'm going to give the Tar Heels offense a B this week. I uh, feel like they missed on some opportunities. The two drops by Blackwell hurt. Obviously, Mays miscues, uh, things like that. Uh, th- this was a situation where this game could have been a lot worse than what it was uh, for South Carolina. It, it very well could have been uh, 42 or 45 to 17, and uh, – Instead, it was only 31, but uh, with the defense showing up, they, they didn't need to score that many. Fortunately, and, la- and, last the- year they, and last year, they might would might would have needed to. You're 100% right about that. The pressure wasn't on to have to do that. I have to agree with you. I have to give them a B as well. You know, you mentioned the Blackwell drops, the couple of turnovers, the inefficiency in, in those fourth down scenarios, the Blackwell drop, they didn't kick a field goal which I thought could have been costly on the one drive. Then the thing that puzzled a lot of people, they had the timeouts left toward the end of the half. South Carolina had the punt and no timeout was taken. I thought that that would have been a great situation to give Drake May the ball and say, you know what, go get us some points, especially how the narrative rode out where South Carolina onside kicked to start the half. Yeah. And that was something that, I mean, with the clock running with like a minute to go and, we're all like all the crowd fans in our session were like timeout, timeout. Like, wow, like question why we not. I mean, you had the best quarterback in the country, or arguably the best quarterback in the country, and you had three timeouts. We've given the ball on the 20 with two with a minute left. Is that is that a product of Chip Lindsay? Maybe not wanting to be as aggressive as uh, maybe Phil Longo would have been last year, potentially, or it could have just been new offense, new system, down your top two weapons. Must not be too aggressive right here. And, and I can see both sides of it, but it definitely felt like in the moment they should have taken advantage of uh, getting the ball with the man left and trying to go score. Now, let's talk about the defense. They get, they're getting a lot of love this week. Last year, as a whole, they had 17 sacks in 14 games. In week one, they sacked Spencer Rattler nine times. Nine. That's not a that's not a mishap. That's not me lying to you. That's nine times they got to the quarterback. What did you notice being there in the crowd about how the defense was moving? The the pressure they were creating were was amazing. The schemes, um, it looked like Gene Chizik's finally got a scheme that works for him and works for the talent on this team. They brought in some talent uh, via recruiting and the transfer portal. Amari Gaynor is one of them that uh, made a big impact, uh, had two sacks on Saturday, two of those nine. 
on Saturday night, and that was very impressive. Just part of it was cover sets too. Sometimes there was just nobody open. Uh, but for the most part, they got pressure on Rattler from the get-go. And the other thing, when they got to him, they wrapped him up. And that that's one thing that last year you saw a lot of could have been sacks and or would have been sacks and quarterback would escape. Feel like as soon as feel like they got Rattler, he was going down. And you look at it and you look at the box score and you see that it wasn't just one guy. Cedric Gray was involved. Amari Gaynor was involved. Evans was involved. Bo Atkinson only saw 15 snaps. He had a sack. They were nine to 10 deep on that defensive line. They were getting pressure after pressure after pressure. And you could tell that Rattler was looking over at the sideline like, what are we doing here? Is somebody going to protect me? I'm dying out here. Yeah. It was just such a different feel from a year ago where quarterbacks would sit in the backfield for watching a 30-minute sitcom and then find their open receiver because the secondary broke down. Yeah, for sure. And uh, it's, it's something interesting. It, we'll find out more through as the year goes on naturally, but was it a product of Carolina's defense or defensive line or is Sarah's offensive line that bad? Uh, and we'll find that out here over the next few weeks for sure as we get into – uh, non-conference play, and then uh, hand ACC player play in a few weeks. Now, just based on South Carolina alone, heading into App State this week at home, is it a fluke, or do you think this unit has the potential to cause havoc throughout the year? They had the potential to cause havoc throughout the year, for sure. They showed it. It felt like the DBs were better, too, cover sack-wise. Elijah Hussey, we've, we've talked about him. He – is a guy that can play almost any position on the field on the defensive side of the ball. When uh, DeAndre Boykins was ruled out pregame, they moved him to star, uh, which is the nickel position, and he played that position really well. They had to bring in uh, a redshirt freshman, uh, Tayon Holloway, to play corner, and you saw some uh, saw the DBs get beat on some jump balls. I think if we clean that up and limit those big plays, the potential's there for this this unit to us have a drastic 180-degree turnaround from last year. I have to agree with you. What I saw from Shizik's defense in that one, number one, they're healthy, which is a big thing in terms of the front seven. You have to be healthy in order to get that pressure. They have guys up front that cause havoc, and I think that even on a decent day, they're not going to sack the quarterback nine times a game. It's not going to happen. It's no. That's like a, a one-in-a-million type of thing. But – Something that, you know, they could get three to four sacks a game, cause pressure in the backfield, make it difficult for a running game to start. That's what the Tar Heels need. They don't need them to be dominant like that in, in terms of sacks. They need them to cause pressure, create havoc, which hopefully leads to turnovers. And I think that this unit definitely has it. Again, the two touchdown drives were scary. They were 2022 touchdown drives. That's how ugly they were. And at that point, I'm sitting there. I'm like, oh, boy, here we go again. This defense is going to go back to the old form. Like, we can't have anything fun. But they buckled down. And you got to give them credit because I don't think last year's crew would have settled down like this crew did. No, and uh, I think the, the two things that popped out the, or was noticeable, at least in the stadium, was on those two touchdown drives was it felt like there was one big play and it just spiraled out of control. Uh, they, those two touchdown drives were initially started. It'd be like second and 10 or third and 10. Start to get a 15-yard first down, and then they'd go hurry up and just 
chunk play after chunk play. Um, the one thing that seemed they made an adjustment at the half was they didn't let that bother them in the second half. There was a drive. Uh, can't remember exactly when it was, sometime in the late third quarter, early fourth, where it was like second and 17 or second and 27, and South Carolina had a big play that was incomplete pass, and we were called for holding on the defense in the defense secondary. Then the next play, uh, we were called for unnecessary roughness on a tackle, picking the guy up and slamming him down. <laughs> it just seemed like – and that just started – it started to feel like, oh, here we go against firing out of control. And the defense stepped up. They didn't let it bother them. They fought through adversity. And they held the South Carolina offense to three points on that drive, uh, which turned out to ultimately help and make it make South Carolina to score again, uh, which they never did. But uh, last year, those are mistakes, those penalties. That's something that the Toronto defense would have said, oh, here we go, what's the slam score? And they didn't do it. Yeah. You know, one of the big things you always hear in football is Bamba don't break, especially on the defensive side of the ball. There was plenty of times where the defense could have broken that one. After the two turnovers, they could have just let them score. They could have just, you know, let the momentum take over. They Like that drive you mentioned where they only allowed the three points. That could have been seven. A couple of bonehead penalties. You know, the corner thinks he's playing WWE and he can slam the guy. They, those things, those things have come back to haunt you. They didn't in this one. And I think that when you're looking at this team and you're looking at the opponent, if it was a team that had no business being on the field with Carolina, you would say, okay, there's room to have some pessimism here and not be totally convinced that it could continue. But let's remember, South Carolina has got a good offense. They have a very good quarterback. Joiner is no fluke. Every time he touched the ball, I had anxiety because I'm like, they're going to run the wildcat and, and just let him run all over the field. They have a couple of really good key, make, play, key playmakers that they were able to shut down. Yeah, and I mean, South Carolina, people's on point saying, oh, the, their offense line is that good, or maybe they are, they're, they didn't have as much talent returning as they thought they did, or during the offseason, the media thought they had. This is a team that beat Tennessee to end the year and Clemson and hung with Notre Dame in the bowl game. They were rolling at the end of last year with Rattler. Uh, Joyner is definitely a wild card and can play anywhere on the field. He killed us two years ago, and seems like the Tarot defense went in with mindset that is not happening. We talk about the sacks, tackles for loss, 16 tackles for loss, by the way. 54 a year ago, they had almost 25% of their tackles for loss in one game. Played 14 games last year. We've got 50% of our sacks and 25% of our tackles for loss in one game against the SEC opponent. But it, the other key stat that stood out was they didn't let South Carolina run the ball. Negative two rushing yards on the day. And that is impressive. Very impressive at that. Now, we graded the offense. What's your grade for the defense? It's definitely A+. Plus. Uh, or I'm going I'm to I'm back up an A. The two chunk plays or chunk drives hurt them. But I'm going to give them an A for sure. Uh, definitely, definitely impressed. I'm going to be a little bit harder of a grader here. I'm going to give them a B+. Plus. I think that there's still room to grow. I want them to improve. If they're listening, I was thrilled with how you performed. But you could be better. Those two touchdown drives you just mentioned, they were ugly. Clean that up, you'll get an A in my book the next game. But overall, final thoughts on the South Carolina game. Met expectations, didn't meet expectations. What were your final thoughts on that? Met expectations. 
all they had to do to meet my expectations was win the game because for years we've just said win a big game. And even though it's non-conference, it has no impact on the overall schedule other than if you're in the playoff hunt at the end of the year, it sets the tone for the season. You're winning a rivalry game with a Florida battle, and the defense showed up uh, without two of your top receivers. Um uh, it's definitely met my expectations. And l- before we move on, let's uh, give a shout out to came on Rucker when Walter Walter Camp Walter Camp National Player of the Week. Yeah, Rucker was a big piece in that puzzle, and he really caused a lot of havoc. I'm sure uh, Spencer Rattler is having nightmares about the Tar Heels front seven after that one. But again, we talk about it a lot in college basketball. You always hear about those resume building wins, and and you need those wins. Now, if you're Carolina and they're not thinking like we are, where we're saying win the ACC and we'll be happy. They're thinking they could compete for the college football playoff. If that's the case, that's the kind of win that you need. That SEC opponent, it holds higher than just playing some random Joe Schmo. So for the Carolina, they're far ways off from that. Obviously, it's only week one. We're not getting our hopes up. We're not, you know, not at all. thinking not ahead all. here. But in hindsight, you have to think about it. That's a resume building type of win, and you have to be very happy with it and how it played out. Absolutely. And even if it's not the college playoff, the highest ranked team uh, goes to the New Year's Six Bowl if you don't win the conference championship. So you could also be playing for a New Year's Six Bowl. And if that win helps you move up in the rankings, which we'll find out tomorrow what it did for, for North Carolina's uh, AP poll ranking, but that, that can help for sure. Now, this game is obviously behind us. We're one weekend. Carolina returns home. They're going to host App State on Saturday afternoon in Chapel Hill. We remember last year, that was a ugly slugfest. 63-61 final. Carolina just barely got out with a win. This year, it's going to look a little bit different. On opening day, App State's quarterback goes down. He has a hand injury. We found out he's going to be out three to four weeks, which means that their backup is going to start. And that's Joey Aguilar. But again, Carolina's had some trouble with backup quarterbacks. And this guy is coming off a week where he completed 11 of 13 for 174 yards. It says school record for the most touchdown passes in a season opener with four. Now, what are your thoughts heading into this week against App State? Yeah, we don't really have a lot on app other than the fact that they beat Gardner-Webb, FCS opponent, uh, 45-24 on Saturday at home. Aguilar, backup quarterback, like you mentioned, he's a transfer from a junior college. Four touchdowns in his opening game is obviously impressive against anybody. Um, but uh, it's a matter, can Carolina prepare for a backup quarterback? Uh, they were unable to do so last year against Georgia Tech, NC State, and Clemson. Uh, so it'll be uh, interesting to see what Gene Chizik has dialed up and can we build on that Sacramento win and the great performance by the defense. Can they build and not get complacent and say, oh, we, we played well in one game, that's all that matters. They, they got to build on that, get better. They had a lot of miscues and, and clean that stuff up. I think the guy that they're going to have to worry about is running back Nate Noel. Remember, last year's game, he had 116 yards on the ground. Carolina's defense looks to be better this year. They stopped the run against Joyner, who's a very quality back. They have to do it again this week. And if they do that, 
it puts the pressure on App State to have to throw the ball. And if we could get the pressure like we did against South Carolina, that's going to be a difficult thing. A lot of the same things remain true from week one to week two, especially given you don't know what App State's going to give you. They're a new-looking team. Bryce is not there no more. We talked about it the other day. We were both very happy about that. But this is a new-looking team, but the same kind of status quo seems to be the thing for Carolina. Come in, stop the run, and force them to have to make bad decisions in the passing game. Absolutely. They the same things do remain true 100 percent Nick. They gotta you still have control of the line of scrimmage and you still have to get create pressure on the defensive line. And if they can do that, hopefully with a guy that probably was not planning on starting, uh starting this game coming to Chapel Hill, then Mike can rile him a little bit. I wish that they had and no disrespect to Gardner Webb whatsoever. I don't want to take it that way, but I wish they had a stronger opponent before they played the Tar Heels, so you could kind of see a little bit of a kind of preview of what to expect. It's hard to take film off of that game. It, it really is, whichever way you look at it. But if you're Carolina, the offense, if they protect the ball, they make it a high-scoring affair. App State might not be able to keep up. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that App will be able to keep up if Carolina can make this a high-scoring affair like it was last year. I think the defense isn't going to give up 61 points this year. I just don't see that happening. Uh, and it does it, – it sucks that App didn't play a more high-quality opponent. Gardner Webb was great at the FCS level. They made the playoffs in 2022. But likely App probably is just more talented and more gifted as uh, we've heard in the past. But it just uh, – they likely didn't put a lot on film for the Carolina coaching staff to look at they're probably keeping things up their back, up their sleeve. And especially with the quarterback change, they weren't expecting to have to play two quarterbacks in that game. They they really weren't. So if you're looking at it from that perspective, App State might have a few things up their sleeve for the Tar Heels. Absolutely. And and with the quarterback change initially, with Chase Bryce and no longer being there, I mean, that's a guy that is talented, uh, very talented. He was at Clemson, at Duke, and then went to App. So how does App's offense change from – Losing Chase Bryce, did they have a play or a set that was not designed specifically for him for throws he can make? Can these other guys make those same throws? Maybe they can, and maybe the offense doesn't change much. But if it does change, how does the Tar how do the Tarles prepare for App? They prepare well for South Carolina with the new offense coordinator. See what they do against App. One thing's for sure: this cannot be a game that the Tar Heels come in like a hangover game. They have to come in ready to go. You, you can't live off the hype of the South Carolina win. Now it's on to App State. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that was discussed by Jones Angel and the Tarlow Sports Network Saturday night after the game was everything that happened Saturday night was exactly what App State wanted to happen. They wanted <laughs> they wanted the Tarlows to win that game. They wanted it to look that way because now they're hoping that the Tarlows have this hangover of, hey, we're good. We just beat ACC school we can roll in here and just, just let it happen. And, and that's not, that can't be the case. This is an in-state battle app came to uh, Chapel Hill four years ago when the series started with this three game series and, and beat the Tarlows 34, 31 on block field goal at the last minute. So that you can't just expect app to roll in here and roll over. No, you can't expect them to roll over one bit. It's going to be a, I think it's going to be a competitive game. The way I see it playing out. And I want to get your take on this as well. 
I see this being close early on. I, I see the two teams kind of trading punches, but I think that ultimately Carolina's defense does what they did on Saturday night. They step up to the occasion and Drake May and company gets the job done offensively. Yeah, this is a game that I think we all we both picked uh, Carolina win originally in our season preview on keeping it heel, and I, I don't think nothing changes after seeing game one. I think we're still expecting the Turtles to win this by at least two possessions. Uh, I think I picked them to win by 18, which is what the uh, line is sitting at right now after opening at 13. So I I think uh, I think the Turtles win this game. Uh, I think it might be app is in-state is developed into a rivalry. The at-state fan base is very excited about this game every year. This is the game they – this is their Super Bowl. This is the game they want to win. And uh, there will be at-state fans in Chapel Hill. They've sold out their ticket allotment. So uh, – but the Tarles still have to show up and be ready to play. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They have to be ready to go. Will they make it easy? Definitely not. But I do think that they'll win this game by – multiple scores I, I just think that the talent and the improved defense is going to prove true and especially in front of the crowd in chapel hill they won that game in a hostile 80 20 type of south carolina fan group it was like a road game it was it was really a true road game so for them i think that experience is going to help them tremendously yeah absolutely it, it definitely that experience last weekend certainly helps and this one will be a little bit more fan friendly for the tarles so uh, hopefully, uh, the other thing to be look, on the lookout for is the App State defense forced three turnovers in eight minutes on Saturday against Gardner Webb. Again, it's Gardner Webb, but uh, forcing three turnovers is impressive. Drake May can't make the middle mistakes that he made on Saturday night. Now, will Drake May have his two top receivers? McCollum's out with a groin injury. They're saying he's day to day. Tez Walker is supposedly having a meeting with the NCAA this week. Do you think that one or both or neither of these receivers will be available on Saturday afternoon? I think McCollum's will probably be available if he's day to day. They will say he's just out for the week. Maybe, maybe not. They didn't tell <laughs> us about they didn't tell us about Boykins until an hour to game time. He had surgery last week, so yeah. Thanks uh, for hiding that, guys. <laughs> so may, maybe McCollum is out and they hide it from App, but. Uh, Tez has a, a hearing in front of the NCAA committee, another NCAA committee on Thursday. It's a different committee than what made the original ruling. So uh, maybe he gets a little bit more grace with this committee than what he's had in the past with Charlie Baker and the NCAA. Um, he's still going to practice this week. Same thing we've heard from all of August. They're practicing like he's going to play. Um, Matt Brown has given hints that if his eligibility is denied this week, there it may not be over. There could be legal action as the next step. So the Tarles are not dropping this. They're, they are not dropping this one with the NCAA. I absolutely love the support for Tez from Eric Church wearing the jersey at the coin toss to Drake May wearing it backwards during his postgame conference. I love how everybody has just come together in realizing that the NCAA is doing wrong by Tez Walker by not letting him play. You have JT Daniels playing at like his fifth school in seven years. How come that is accepted, but this situation isn't? Especially given, take the talent off the football field. Let's look at the family and the mental health side of it. The NCAA, and you say it all the time, is saying that they're for the student-athletes. If you're for the student-athletes, you make the exception here and you let the kid play. Yeah, and we've seen mental health become a more um, talked about topic in our in our society today, and especially since pre right before COVID and through COVID, we've talked about it. 
and the NCA has made a point to have mental health experts and advisors on these college campuses and available for these student athletes to talk about things and try to protect the student athlete as much as possible. And then they're not doing it with Tez and the NCA, like you said, people support him. Uh, obviously I was at the game. I've rewatched the broadcast, Greg McElroy and Sean McDonough. They both, uh, they both pretty much ripped the NCA on Saturday night uh, <laughs> on ABC national television. So uh, hopefully the support is finally going to get the NCA. Maybe not, but they're on, they're on full blast from, Pretty much everybody. Yeah, everybody started to take notice. And I have bad memories of Greg McElroy as a Jets quarterback, but he redeemed himself on Saturday night when he made those comments on the broadcast. Everybody's for Tez. I hope the NCAA sees it, lets this kid play. It was punishment enough he couldn't play in front of his family and his ill grandmother who hasn't been able to see him play. That's punishment enough. Let the kid play. But on that note, the Atlantic Coast Conference is now the All-Coast Conference. No, they're really not. But it would be a pretty good name, given the fact that they have added three teams to the mix. It's finally done. Stanford, SMU, and Cal will all join the conference for the 2024-2025 school year. Now, there was a lot of back and forth. There was four teams that were definite no at the first vote. One did flip to make this happen. I think we all know who the culprit was there our little brother. What are your takes on the expansion of the ACC? Really doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> Other than increasing their member number, uh, it it increases revenue a little bit, but not by enough to offset the cost of travel. We're, we're talking about and two schools that are 2,000 plus miles away and another one that's in Texas. Uh, so it takes the members from 14 to 17, for football and then 15 to 18 for all our sports. Thanks, Notre Dame. There's a couple of things that I, I, I sit here and I think about that don't make sense. Number one, the travel. They were not thinking about the Olympic sports other than football when they made this decision. There was no thought process whatsoever. You mean to tell me, let's use Courtney Banghart and the women's basketball team for a minute. They're going to have to travel to play Stanford during the middle of the week with classes and everything else going on, they didn't think about the student athletes and how it was going to impact them at any point. Also, SMU agreed to join the conference with not taking revenue sharing for seven years. Is that the type of school you really want? Uh, yeah, SMU is actually nine years with no TV revenue. Which and, is, and that makes it even worse. worse. Cal- that makes it even worse. <laughs> Cal and Stanford are joining at 30% TV revenue for seven years. Then in year eight, they they get 70%. And in year nine, they get 75% before receiving full revenue in a decade. So these three schools are joining at – well, two of them are joining at 30% discount rate, and SMU is joining no revenue. If a school is willing to take no money to come to your – they're probably not worth adding. No, not at all. It's not even. It's not even like makes sense in terms of where they are located. There's no, what's there's no like common sense here. Like it's, it makes no sense to me. Speaking of the uh, the travel for Olympic sports, so it's came out recently that uh, doubt they're look that the ACC is looking at Dallas, Texas as a meeting location 
for these teams to play games. So you won't even have home games on your college campus for softball or potentially women's basketball against these, against these schools. And the reason is to minimize travel. If you want to minimize travel, maybe don't add schools 2,000 miles away. First of all, the Dallas idea makes no sense either. Like, why are we playing a uh, a conference game on a neutral site? Right, and <laughs> and we're some of the some of the uh, programs or the sports don't have set schedules, but women's basketball is a good one that, for the conference. Their conference schedule is Thursday Sunday, so you play a Thursday game and a Sunday game. So, is Courtney Banghart traveling to Stanford on Tuesday to play a Thursday game? And then having to fly back home on Friday to play a Sunday game against NC State, like the recovery time is not in the best interest of these student athletes or the fans. No, and then you think about the time it takes to travel, the time difference. You have to adjust your body to that. It's not fair to anybody involved. This whole thing just is a kind of sign of desperation by the ACC because they're thinking ahead to 2036 when Clemson, Florida State, and Carolina go, you know what, we're out of here, see ya, because we have other options. These schools are going to wait for them. They're not worried about it. But the ACC was worried about getting lost in the shuffle, and that's where this expansion came to be. They said, oh, you know what, let's add, and they spun a wheel. They were like, oh, we'll take these three Pac-12 schools. It just doesn't add up to me. Yeah, and a big driver of adding Stafford to Cal was Notre Dame, who isn't even a football member, and football is the money-making sport that drives the TV revenue. Why did the ACC allow Notre Dame such a large voice? Is it going to help get Notre Dame in as a full-time member later down the road? If it does, the, the, the mindset for Florida State, Clemson, and Carolina might change. More TV revenue might come in to allow the offset of what the difference is between the SEC and the Big Ten right now. But if Notre Dame is not joining as a full-time member, there should have been no reason why the ACC should have listened on their opinion of adding Stanford and Cal. By the way, they play Stanford annually as a football game, and they have an agreement with ACC to play five schools. So now they're just at Stanford, and it's an account toward their ACC games when they're already playing them. This whole situation reminds me of like a business meeting where you have your full-time management sitting at the front of the table and you have your part-time or lower workers toward the end of the table. And that end of the table is deciding what's going on, which should not be. If Notre Dame wants to have such a big voice in this, put up or shut up. Join the conference. You right. fully join the conference. Stop with this independent garbage. If you're in, you're in. If you're out, you're out. Stop letting them dictate the situation. And my big question is, why did NC State decide to flip? What was their mindset? Did they think, oh, we're going to go with the cool kids? And then all of a sudden just say, ah, you know what? And we're stuck here. Might as well add other teams. Yeah, with Notre Dame, we'll touch on that first. But this is the second time in three years the ACC has given Notre Dame a way out. Once during COVID, they let them join the conference for the year and play in the conference championship game to play games. They should have said, you're not playing unless you join. And then with this situation, again, if it's a deal, and maybe it is and we don't know about it yet, but if it's a deal, if it was a deal where, hey, Cal and Stanford can join if Notre Dame joins. Okay, that makes a little bit more sense financially. 
And then with NC State, it, it definitely seemed like they were going with Florida State, Clemson, and Carolina to be with the cool kids that – who are arguably – those three programs are arguably the three most likable and wanted between the Big Ten and the SEC at the moment with what's left in realignment. Maybe State thought originally they were going to follow Carolina to wherever Carolina went and it was going to be a pairing thing. And then State's like, ah, maybe not. And they're like, well – if we can't come with you, then we're just good the opposite way. Now, let's fast forward here as we kind of wrap up this conference realignment talk. In 2036, what conference will the North Carolina Tar Heels be a part of? I'm gonna think I'm gonna say it happens before 2036. I, I think Ooh, that I think I think those I think the three that vote no will find a way out in the next five to seven years by 2030. I think I think the Tar Heels are gonna head to the SEC. And I'm a little biased. I kind of would like them to stay SEC because it's more regional where I'm located. I can still see some more games. Uh, but I feel like it makes a lot of sense as well. The SEC would probably like to add their geographical footprint to North Carolina. They don't have a team in that state yet. Uh, it would expand them. And uh, it would make sense basketball-wise. You'd be adding a top-tier basketball program and academic program. So you'd be getting a mix of like a Vanderbilt and Kentucky for basketball and academically. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to go to the SEC. I'm going to say it happens by 2030. I'm going to go with the SEC too, and I'm biased. I want the Big Ten so bad because just like you said, it makes sense for me. I'd be able to see a lot more games in my area, but I think that the SEC helps in terms of football because let's face it, if you're an SEC program and you prove you could compete, you're drawing the best talent. You're drawing the best coaches. You're You're in that mix. I think that Carolina realizes that and they want a piece of that. I think that the longer this lingers, Big Ten basketball is going to make a case that, you know what, it might be the best home for Carolina basketball. But just like you said, the SEC is no slouch. They're also growing as time goes on. I think that the SEC makes too much sense for Carolina to turn it down. And if that offer comes around, I think that that's where they're going to head as well. Yeah, and Obviously, realignment has us all confused at the moment, but I'm pretty sure the Big Ten's already at 20 teams uh, starting next year. So, I think the SEC still at 16. It would probably they still got four spots to catch up to the Big Ten as far as members go. I think the SEC would be the one to uh, definitely make the push for Carolina. Maybe we should start renaming these conferences: the Big 20, the All the All Atlantic Conference, or, or the, whatever. The, the Pat Two. The, the Tupac I saw on Twitter, yeah. I was dying. Tupac. I'm like, this is great. The Tupac, Tupac. <laughs> the death of the Pac-12 is now the Tupac. Yeah, I mean, I, pretty much. So, it, we'll see. That obviously, is this the end of realignment? Probably not. Well, there's probably a lot more to come. Oh, yeah, there's a lot more to come. And in college athletics, you know that by 2036, when the grant of rights uh, actually – expires there's going to be a lot of different stories we're going to be talking about the nil will be well into place most likely i'm sure they'll allow a transfer portal every single year at that point you know make chaos the ncaa likes chaos apparently let's just have make it happen yeah make it the wild wild west and let's let's go back to what why the acc is realigning with stanford and cal it's because they waited till everybody else did their coach schools and they're like oh well we don't have nobody to take to the prom so let's that's who's left. Like, let's take them. Like, they waited too they're long. Not the, they're they not the prettiest, but hey. They're, they're not the options, and that was it. They waited too long, and it came back to bite them. But, again, 
there's going to be a lot to talk about about Carolina and what goes on with them. And of course, we hope that you tune into our next couple of episodes where we're going to talk about a lot of different things. We didn't even get into Aaron Matson yet. Yeah. Field hockey sent three and one and things like that. And women's soccer has two big games this week at Sarah Carolina and Alabama, two top or top 12 ranked opponents. So, you know, the deal we'll be back next week, Wednesday, we'll have a new show released and we'll give you all those updates and we'll definitely talk more about it at that point. Jordan, final thoughts here for our second episode. Football is exciting. It's great to have college football back. Uh, Saturday night was fun. I'm still a little hoarse from uh, losing my voice from screaming so much. But uh, at State Carolina, Saturday, 515, ACC Network. Uh, Carolina's up to an 18-point favorite, and we'll see if they can uh, – can they keep the momentum going? That's going to be the ultimate question. That is the big question at that. My final thought – Thank you to the UNC football program for not ruining my Saturday night. I think that that is the biggest thing that I could have asked for. You know, summer's wrapping up. It was opening day. Everything seemed to be going against Carolina before the game, and they came out and they played a great football game. Now, don't ruin this Saturday. (laughs) That's all. And we still have, and Matt Brown said, but they were good Saturday night. Now they've said all all offseason, how do you go from good to great? And it's limiting the middle mistakes. Don't allow those chump plays. Don't allow missed tackles. Uh, make your blocks. Don't miss your assignments. Things like don't drop passes. And and a lot of that should get cleaned up from week one to week two. We'll see what they work on. They're they're training this like they lost the game Saturday night. So they're they're going to improve. And uh, we'll we'll see how they play against out. I agree. I think they're going to improve, and they just have to do their job. And Speaking of jobs, make sure you check out all of our latest updates on Keeping It Heel. We'll be giving you all the latest news and updates on the North Carolina Tar Heels to bridge the gap from now until our next show. Until next time, that's Jordan Falls. I'm Nick Delahanty. We'll talk to you guys really soon. Go Heels. Go Heels.